Now I want to uh, invite you, let's, let's bow our heads, let's have a word of prayer together here, and we'll include these, these dear souls that we've talked about, and uh, have the Lord uh, heal them. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come before you. We thank you for the blessings that you give to us. You provided for our needs as we're here, our homes, our food, clothing, all the necessities while we are here uh, on this this planet and we're uh, preparing for the return of Jesus. We thank you for this Sabbath day, the day we can come together and be part of the family and get a taste of heaven. And it's such a joyous day to be with the saints. And uh, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will come into our hearts and our minds and prepare us for the message we have this morning as we get into your Holy Word. We pray that the Holy Spirit will uh, cultivate and continue to cultivate a love for the truth that we find in your Word, a love for Jesus, and Lord, a love for souls, to save souls, and prepare people for the kingdom of God. We thank you so much for Jesus. As the world spends this day in bunnies and eggs and and all that nonsense, we look back to our Savior, the one who died, that we may be free, that we may have the opportunity to eternal life, be a member of the kingdom. And Father, as we think back at that time, we're so very thankful Jesus came. We're so very thankful that He showed us who You are. We don't have to listen to the devil's lies. We see Jesus, we see You, we see love, we see at Calvary Your undying love for us. And it is an undying love. Father, we pray that our hearts will be filled with that love. We're so very thankful. So very thankful. And we praise Your holy name. Father, I pray you forgive us our sins. We know that's what brought him here. It's what nailed him to the cross. But because he depended upon thee, he did your will. He overcame all temptation, never sinning once. Conquered the grave. Gives us hope. Hope for eternal life. Hope that we too, while here, can overcome sin. That's the promise. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for being here. Providing the blessing. May we grasp it with both hands and share it with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's speak a bit today about... Jesus, <laughs> I hope, friends, that that's what uh, you'll know about me, is how to be like Jesus. That's what I want to be. I want to be like Jesus. What about you? I'm going to look back at some things through the Bible. I'm going to learn some lessons today, I hope. I've entitled this message, The Three Empty Gardens. I'm going to look at three gardens um, in this message, see what we can learn from these gardens. 
and uh, spiritual lessons that are taught to us about our Savior, about the kingdom that is to come, about being in the family of God. You know, we kind of getting a late start this year as far as gardens are concerned. The past few years I've been learning how to plant and tend a vegetable garden. Um, last year we didn't have much of one, uh, just circumstances. Uh, the weather is very strange the last few years. Uh, you know, we've had, the last couple of years we really haven't had a spring. And uh, we've gone st straight from winter, a couple of days of warm weather, right into summer, it seemed like. And that makes it tough when you're wanting to have a garden. And so my wife has convinced me to, to uh, finally, she's, I think she's glad, but if I can get to it, I have raised beds. Just because of where we are and the, you know, the rain and the water property, low-lying property and that stuff. But anyway, you know, I've, I've been practicing and learning, and, I, and, and, it's, and I enjoy it, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I grew up very active in, when I was young in, in sports and in, in scouting, and I never learned much about the garden that my parents put out every year. They would put out a little bit of a garden. I tried to have a garden when I was first married. We lived up on the river, <laughs> and uh, it, well, we we did plant a little bit of sweet corn, and and it kind of came out. The raccoons got to it a bit, but but uh, um, um, it was pretty dismal as a garden, though. And the only thing that seemed to grow were weeds, <laughs> and it doesn't take a green thumb to grow weeds. Have you ever noticed that? It really doesn't take a green thumb to grow weeds. So I figured that I had a, a black thumb, which is a term that means everything you plant dies or never lives to begin with, you know. So I never really, really tried much. I mean, you know. But I've since learned that it takes work. It takes good instruction to have a successful garden. You cannot expect to just toss some seeds in the soil and magically the Garden of Eden springs up. Well... You know, there are some people that can do that, but I can't. So I've been educating myself the best I can, and I've come to a point where I've, I do have some confidence, and, and I do enjoy putting out a garden. It's, it's good, healthy work. It's outside work, and uh, it has its rewards. And there's a certain satisfaction, isn't there, in eating that which you've grown and, and that you've harvested yourself. And I can't express enough um, how beneficial it is to eat fresh from a garden. Especially today. Most things are modified in some way genetically or pesticides or whatever. Even some of the organic stuff, you know, is tough. And we, we like to go to the farmer's market, you know, and uh, get some organic things. It really tastes good too, doesn't it? Planting, tending, and harvesting a garden, friends, takes, let me tell you something, it takes faith and it takes obedience. Did you know that? Whether a person believes in God or not, they have to have faith and they have to be obedient to the laws of nature to have a successful garden. 
Who created the laws of nature? Our Creator. The laws of nature are God's laws. And you know, He will use them to draw people to Himself. Praise Him for that. So planting and working a garden will teach you to become more faithful. It will teach you eventually to become obedient. Obedient to natural law. And God will use that to draw you to Him. Okay? And so I say, you know, you plant and work a garden, it's going to teach you to become more faithful and obedient. Did you ever wonder why God placed Adam and Eve in a garden? He gave them instructions about the garden and He gave them work to do for Him, didn't He? God was teaching them to be faithful and obedient to Him. And I want to take you now on a journey, so to speak, back across you know, the centuries of time to visit three very historic gardens. And the story, the, the, the story of each of these gardens uh, is found in the Bible, although their history is separated really by about 4,000 years. Each one has, uh, well, has important memories of the past that speak to us today with relevant lessons for our lives, and that's why I want to bring it to your attention. The first garden brought to our attention is the first garden. <laughs> it's found in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, that's where it's recorded that God planted a garden in the midst of a beautiful world that He had just created. Genesis 2 verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight. You know, we walk around in nature, and my wife and I on Sabbath afternoons, we like to go to the park, you know, maybe a state park, and go walking through the woods and and God has really created some beautiful things, hasn't He? They pale to the Garden of Eden, don't they? From what we've read. The Lord grew every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Beautiful trees. And good for food, it says there. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. The tree of life. Most beautiful tree ever created. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It too was beautiful. This garden called Eden was to be the home of Adam and Eve. Humanity's first parents. And it says in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now, what's it mean to dress it? It means that, that he had license to go through and work that garden. To, to maybe take, a, maybe there's some, some grapes and you've you got to work the grapes, you know, and kind of not work like we do today. Maybe kind of hard to comprehend, but, but to, to dress it in such a way to, to make it, if possible, more stylish or beautiful to arrange it in such a way see that brought glory to God to keep tabs on it 
It was a work, wasn't it? On every hand, the beauties of the creative power of God were seen in this garden. This garden was not like our gardens today. Although, I've seen some really beautiful gardens, haven't you? But it wasn't like our gardens today. It was perfect, yet it still needed tending to. Like I said, it was made for man's benefit, you see, to promote faith and obedience. That's another reason why the Lord put a test in the garden, too. The third chapter of Genesis, you know, we know, records the fall of Adam and Eve when they listened to and followed the temptation of Satan and disobeyed the Creator. It's what's called sin. Broke God's law. They failed the test of obedience. And suddenly the joy in the hearts of the early of our early parents, well, it was gone. The beauty of the garden now seemed dim. They felt alone. They were sad, which was a new experience for them. Then came another experience, which they had never known before. If we go to Genesis 3, we look at verse 8. It reveals the story. It says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Where are you? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. So the Lord came walking among the trees of the garden and and Adam and Eve had communed daily with God face to face before. And the joy of these occasions just, a friends, it can't be described. We're going to have that opportunity one of these days. Amen? But on this day, Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord because they were afraid of the Lord. And I'll tell you that the entire universe looked upon this scene with great anticipation. What will God do with the now sinful pair? He's created them. Thus He has the power to slay them if He will, or will He wink at the sin? Will He overlook it? Will He make some change? That'll destroy Satan and forget about the sin of Adam and Eve. You know, the angels had dealt with rebellion before and Satan and his angels were forced from heaven. Because there was a war in heaven, the Bible tells us. What will God do with man? So they were looking with great anticipation. Adam and Eve were ashamed, so they hid from God. They were already experiencing the promise of Satan when he told them if they would eat of the forbidden fruit, their eyes would be open. They would have new experiences. Oh, were they having them. They feel condemned. And now their Creator has come into the garden. What will He do? Will He condemn them? Adam knew what was going to happen. God had made a promise. 
If you sin, wages of sin is what? Death. So they're hiding from God. And suddenly the sound of the voice of God is heard calling, Adam, where art thou? You know what I love about that? God comes looking for us. He can't but help to come looking for us because He loves us. Where art thou? This is the cry of the Savior as He tenderly seeks the lost to bring them back to the family. This is the call of God's love that was to be heard all the way to Calvary as He called to men everywhere to come, repent, and live anew in Him. This call is to be heard down to the end of time. Down to the very last moment before the door of mercy shall close forever. Calling men and women to come and accept His love and forgiveness. Not in condemnation does God call friends. But He calls in love and compassion and forgiveness. God's calling us right now, beloved. What will we do with the call of Jesus? Ashamed and heartbroken, Adam and Eve confessed their sin. God does not kill them, but shows them mercy. Already, you see, a plan had been laid in heaven that provided a ransom for their sins long before Jesus had agreed to be the lamb slain. Now God does not condemn them, but He cannot excuse their disobedience either, can He? So God has a problem. How will He deal with sin? Like I said, the wages of sin is death. There must be a death for the sin that has been committed. In order for man to be redeemed and live forever, someone must die in his place. A substitute, maybe. Yes, the Lamb of God. You see, the only way to redeem mankind would be through the death of the one who was responsible for them. It would take the death of the Son of God for no other death, friends, would make it possible for humanity to become heirs to the kingdom. That's why Jesus had to die. God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. A promise of the seed. Now I want to point out here that not only is this a promise of the coming Savior for man, mankind, but it also contains within it a promise that God will put a hatred for sin. That's what enmity means, doesn't it? Hatred. He will put a hatred for sin in our hearts and minds 
if we are willing to give ourselves completely to Him. And He tells us this. We go to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 16 17. It says this is the covenant. This is the agreement. This is a promise that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. When he does that, verse 17, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. No more. I'm not going to bring them up when we have an argument. We do that as human beings, don't we? Always go back to the past, don't we? I'm not going to remember them. Isn't that good news? We'll be in the kingdom 10,000 years. God going to bring one of our sins up? <laughs> no. Banished. Gone. Never to be remembered. That's good news. God is willing to forget our sins if we come into a covenant relationship with Him, giving our will entirely to Him. Then God will put a hatred for sin within us. This is what His promise is. He writes His laws upon our hearts and minds. He gives us new desires for righteousness and not for sin. Oh, we'll still have that battle. We have a tempter. We have self within our bones. fighting to live. We have an enemy, but we we won't have an enemy forever. The Bible says that one day Satan will be destroyed. Praise God. Amen. No more tempter. One day. Again, the kingdom of righteousness will reign throughout the universe. All trace of evil will be gone forever. Forever. And those who are in this covenant with God will be there. Do you wish to be there? I want to be there. And you can be there, friend. Accept the invitation of Jesus and give yourself completely to Him so He can change your filthy heart. Make it a pure and noble one. Filled with His love, His character traits, His law. Today is the day. But at this moment in that first garden, the Garden of Eden, disobedience had come and it had to be removed. Adam and Eve can't live in the Garden of Eden anymore. They must leave it either by death or by the grace of God in sending His Son to redeem, to die in their place. They must forfeit the Garden home. And God chose to send His Son to take their place. To die a death that, well, friends, we deserve. 
This time they were removed from that garden. We read in Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24, that God drove them out of the garden and placed an angel at the east gate to, to keep the way of that gate from man's eating of the tree of life, thus living forever as sinners. Verse 22, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. It's very interesting to think about, contemplate about this, you know. If sinful man would be permitted to eat of this tree, man would live forever and sin would thus live in man forever. That's not going to happen, is it? God won't allow that to happen. So he drove out the couple from the garden and the tree of life. And I want you to notice something very significant here as well. Light has always been a symbol, hasn't it? Of what? Truth. Truth. And who is truth? Well, it's been... You're on the right track. It's always been a symbol of the divine presence. Okay? And as such, those who've studied about the sanctuary will recall that the Shekinah glory of God appeared between what? Remember the mercy seat? top of the the Ark of the Covenant what was on each side of that mercy seat wasn't it two cherubim and in between was the Shekinah glory right it appeared between the two cherubim one on either side of the mercy seat now I want you to notice verse 24 again think about this it says there in verse 24 it says he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden, cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. That's very interesting. If you do a little bit of digging, a little research, the phrase a flaming sword is, is a rather inexact translation of the Hebrew. It re literally reads a glittering of the sword. Now that's very significant. That's very interesting. There was no literal sword guarding the gate of paradise, friends. There was rather what appeared to be the, what should I say, like a scintillating reflection of light that would come from a sword if it was spinning, turning every way, like uh, rapidly. Flashing shafts of light radiating from an intensely brilliant center. What do you suppose that light was? You have two cherubim, and between the cherubim is this shining light. Well, the form of the Hebrew verb, mithapaketh, it's rendered in the King James Version as turned every way. It really means turning itself every way. So this verb is used exclusively to express an intensive, reflexive, excuse me, reflexive action and requires in this instance that the sword appeared to whirl itself about. There's a bright light. 
And this radiant living light was none other, friends, I'm going to tell you, than the Shekinah glory. It was the manifestation of the divine presence. There's references for that. And, and, but the, have you ever wondered, and the reason I bring this up too, have you ever wondered why Adam and Eve and their offspring would come to the gate of the garden every Sabbath for worship? Why would they do that? I mean, were they longing to go back into the garden? They knew God was in the garden. Oh, it's because they came into the presence of God right there. This is why. I mean, for centuries, those that were loyal to God gathered to worship Him at the gate of paradise. They met with God right there at the garden. Now, here's one reference for you. It's Patriarchs and Prophets, page 62. I just find that incredible. I love that little tidbit there. It's fantastic, I think. Because, you know, this is where God remember. He made the sacrifice. He skinned the animals. He made clothes to put on them. That's where He met with His people. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 62. The fallen race were long permitted to gaze upon the home of innocence, their entrance barred only by the watching angels. No mention of a sword. Watching angels. At the cherubim-guarded gate of paradise, the divine glory was revealed. That's the Shekinah glory. Between the cherubim. Hither came Adam and his sons to worship God. Here they renewed their vows of obedience to that law, the transgression of which had banished them from Eden. When the tide of iniquity overspread the world and the wickedness of men determined their destruction by a flood of waters, you know, Noah's flood, the hand that had planted Eden withdrew it from the earth. God took Eden back to heaven, friends. That's where the tree of life is. It's up in heaven now, in the garden. And so today we spiritually stand at the gate of this empty garden and we ask, what does this garden teach me? Well, in the first place, the empty garden reveals that God means exactly what He says. It seems such a little thing to eat the forbidden fruit from that tree, but oh, what trouble it caused. Amen? Paul says in Romans 5, verse 12, he says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. He's saying here that the single sin of Adam and Eve passed on to their posterity, a tendency to sin, and a liability to its punishment, which is death. So by their transgression, sin was introduced as an infectious power in human nature that is antagonistic to God, isn't it? And this infection has continued ever since. What was it really that drove Adam and Eve out of the garden? Was it the angels? Or was it sin? It was sin that drove them out. Now, just as a refresher, how is sin defined by the Bible? We find one definition, don't we? 
Oh, I know there are books written by all these theologians that there are all kinds of different definitions of sin, but you see, that's the theologians, that's not the Bible. We find that definition in 1 John 3 and verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. In Genesis 3.17, Adam was told that he had broken a direct command of God by eating of that tree. Adam transgressed the commandments. Thus he sinned and was cast out of the garden. Now friends, I'm going to tell you, when you talk about the law of God, and that's what the whole issue of the great controversy is about. In fact, I believe that Satan's attack primarily was on the whole law, but well, let me put it this way. It was generally on the whole law, but primarily was the first commandment. You'll have people who can't discern spiritual things. Though they may be called pastor or minister. But there's always somebody who says, I don't believe that there were commandments back there at that time. I believe the commandments began when God gave them to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. To the Jews only. Well, i got to ask a question. I don't know. I'm just simple Hoosier. Do you believe Adam and Eve sinned when they took the forbidden fruit? You know? Did they or didn't they? Did God have a right to remove them? Did God have a right to destroy them? What gave him that right? There had to be a law. Let's break down Genesis 3.6 and see if any of the Ten Commandments were broken. Just out of curiosity. Genesis 3. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes. You know, after doubt and unbelief in God's word had been awakened in Eve by Satan. Some doubt there, see. The tree seemed vastly different to her. So she looked at the tree in this way with a desire you see, that she hadn't had before. Desire to partake of its fruit. And looking at the tree in this way was a concession to Satan's inducements, wasn't it? She was already guilty in her mind of transgressing the Tenth Commandment. What's it say? Thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbor's. That tree didn't belong to her. That tree was forbidden to her. That tree was God's tree. So she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. So having coveted that, that to which she had no right, the woman proceeded to transgress one commandment after another. First commandment was next. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Oh, it'll make me wise. Wiser than God. That's what Satan said. 
You'll be like God. She took of the fruit thereof. What'd she do? She stole God's property. Isn't that a commandment? Thou shalt not steal. Then she ate. By eating the forbidden fruit, she also transgressed what? The sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. She was killing herself. And gave also unto her husband with her, breaking two commandments. The ninth, thou shalt not bear false witness, which is what she did. And the sixth again, thou shalt not murder. She killed her husband. Now he, of course, decided to take it. Because it says, and he did eat. He broke the sixth, thou shalt not murder. So you see, friends, it's quite clear that Adam and Eve broke God's commandments, didn't they? And we know that in James chapter 2, you break one, you break them all. Isn't that what he says? James 2 verse 10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. He's guilty of breaking them all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery. Now what law is he talking about here? Where do you find that? You find that in the Ten Commandments, don't you? For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. The Ten Commandments. So, it really is pretty silly and a baseless argument to say there were no commandments until Sinai. I'm sure you agree with me that Adam and Eve did sin. In fact, the empty garden proves that they sinned, friends. Otherwise, God would not have driven them out. He wouldn't have had a right to drive them out of the garden. Paul backs this up, Romans 4. Romans 4.15, he says, Where there is no law, there is no transgression. If there had been no law then, there would have been no transgression of the law, and thus no sin, thus no empty garden. Why? What's the law do? The law points out sin. That's what Paul says in Romans 3.20. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The only way man would know sin is by the existence of a law. Paul even quotes some of the Ten, the Ten Commandments to, to show that he's not talking about the ceremonial or the ordinances or the civil laws for the theocracy or any of those things. You know, you always get the people say, well, there's 600 and some laws. Which one are you talking about? Paul makes it very clear. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. So listen to me carefully. According to the Bible, every single sin committed by man before Mount Sinai proved the existence of the law of God. And the empty garden standing there for perhaps centuries was moot testimony to mankind that God's law was exact and that God's law had been broken. When Cain, years after his parents had been driven from the garden, killed his brother, he committed sin. He transgressed the commandment that said, Thou shalt not murder. 
When the world was consumed with evil thoughts and actions to the point that God determined to send a flood and destroy all men, they were destroyed because they had broken the Ten Commandments and turned to their own ways away from God. Don't be fooled by these supposed ministers of the gospel that teach otherwise. They're advocates for the devil. Now, our human reasoning may lead us to wonder if God didn't want to change something when Adam and Eve sinned so he could not have to drive them out of the garden. But God could change nothing, friends. For the Ten Commandments are but a revelation of His character. And it's impossible for Him to change His character. It's perfect. Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. The Bible says Christ Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So he could not change the law to accommodate sin when Adam and Eve broke the law. Why would he want to? As grievous as it was. And he couldn't. And this empty garden teaches us another very vital lesson as well. God had the right to kill Adam and Eve immediately. Did you know that? Immediately. He had that right. He created them. He could uncreate them. Is that a word? <laughs> they disobeyed Him. They sinned by transgressing His commandments. And the wages of sin is death. They had willfully separated themselves from God's program for their lives. And since God is life, the giver of life, they had chosen the opposite of life, which is death. They deserved to die. But why didn't they die? Why did God drive them from the garden instead? Why did He let them live? Well, I believe it was because of His grace and His love. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are some who feel that in the Old Testament men were saved by keeping commandments or by, by works. But in the New Testament, men are saved by faith and grace alone. They call them the two dispensations. Well, this is not true, friend. For there, in the Garden of Eden, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus met together. The commandments had been broken, but the Lord stepped into that scene and He offered His grace to Adam and Eve. Immediately. He promised them that one day, a Savior... The Son of God would come and die instead of them. And they would have eternal life again if they remained faithful to Him. They had to confess and repent, and they did. 
They clung to that promise of future Savior. That's what we read in Genesis 3.15. Promise of the seed. And in Romans 3, it says that they were justified freely by His grace. Notice verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified freely by His grace. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, that's substitute, through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. Now, the word believeth means committed to Jesus. Not just a mental assent that He existed. Ever since the first sin, God's grace has been working to save men from their sin. God doesn't remove His character as a standard for a man. doesn't do away with the law. doesn't lay aside His commandments. But what He does, He reveals Himself to us through those commandments. But because we've sinned, He offers us abundantly of His grace and His love which is unearned and undeserved by us. That's what that first garden teaches us, friends. It is this first empty garden that sets the stage for the others. So let's travel ahead 4,000 years to look at a second empty garden. This one is situated outside the city of Jerusalem to the north. It's a Thursday night. It's in the year 31 A.D. Twelve men, having just completed supper in an upper room in Jerusalem, they've made their way down the steps from the room out into the darkened streets. And as they walk, they're listening intently to Jesus of Nazareth. And they make their way rather slowly to the little gate by the footpath that leads out, you know, the north wall of the city and down the pathway into a valley that leads across to the second garden. And this second garden is known as the Garden of Gethsemane. Across the valley they go, climbing the little hill, the entrance of the garden. You know, this isn't the first time that they've been there. We pick up the story in Matthew 26. We go to verse 36. It says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And then he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. That was kind of his inner circle. And began to be sorrowful, very heavy. And then saith he unto them, 
My soul is exceeding sorrowful. Now we don't use that kind of language today, do we? Exceeding sorrowful. We probably would say extremely, extremely heartbroken. Even unto death. I mean, that's heartbroken, isn't it? Tarry ye here and watch with me, he said. So Jesus asks eight of the disciples to remain near the entrance of the garden and to enter into a season of prayer with him. He, there, he asked them all to pray for him. And the four men remaining make their way further into the garden where Jesus asked that they too pray with him but be very near to him. Because he's heartbroken, very exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. And now Jesus goes further still, and there he, he falls to the ground, he prostrates himself upon the ground in the garden in extreme agony of soul. We can't comprehend. Verse 39 he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible. This is his humanity speaking. This is that humanity in us that would shrivel. Plead not to go through with it. Let this cup pass from me. But then the higher powers are still in control, aren't they? Jesus says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now we read these things. We read this and we think, well, that's pretty short there. I mean, what was that? A minute or so? And then he gets up and goes, No, friends. Verse 40, he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. Now, I don't blame them. I mean, I'm not like picking on them. I probably would have definitely been asleep too. Been a very long day. They were wore out. They'd had the Passover feast. They're comfortable. Right? They don't quite understand what's going on, do they? So here, they're asleep. And he says unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? How long had he been back there? At least an hour. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You read in the Desire of Ages where... Uh, um, Prophet tells us that the disciples were in what what she described as a stupor. Hey, their bellies were full, they'd been tired. You know what happens. This stupor is kind of like being drunk, isn't it? Intoxicated. That's why Jesus said, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
And this is the darkest hour for our Savior. I mean, one of his disciples has turned against him. And he's, he's what's he doing? He's gathering a mob to seek him. To seek him out in that very spot, actually. The hour of his death upon the cross is about to come, and a careless world is unconcerned. And the people to whom had been entrusted to tell the world of the coming Messiah are busy tonight and preparing for the Passover, going through the Passover, all unmindful that the true Lamb of God prays alone in a garden. Verse 42, He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Again, a battle with self. It's humanity fighting. That's selfishness. The tempter surrounding him. It says, And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. It's three times. He goes through this process for a few hours. agony continued and fin finally the quietness of the night is broken by the sound of a mob coming through the valley up the little hill there into the garden led by none other than the deserting disciple Judas who betrayed him and the disciples waken now but they're ready for a fight Peter pulls the sword out, cuts off Malchus' ear. Jesus says, put that away. And they stand amazed and stunned as Jesus allows himself to be taken by this mob as though some criminal's been caught in a crime. Back down the hill, through the little gate, on the north wall they go, leading their prisoner, and now the garden is empty. Because they all fled. And like Eden 4,000 years before, this garden too stands silent. And as we look at it today, we ask, what does this second empty garden teach us? We see, because the commandments of God could not be set aside or abridged or changed in any detail, it was necessary that the full penalty of breaking the law be paid. Thus it was impossible for the Father in heaven to answer the cry of his own son, if it be possible, let this cup pass. He couldn't. Jesus, the Savior, was to pay the penalty of the broken law that caused that first empty garden He was to become death for all who would accept Him. Jesus' prayer had concluded with those immortal words, Nevertheless, not my will, but Thine be done. And you know, Jesus would go all the way to Calvary alone. 
and there he would give his own precious, innocent blood to pay the full eternal debt of sin. Isaiah 63 and verse 3 says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. And like I mentioned a moment ago, Mark 14.50 just says, And they all forsook him and fled. Because God cannot change His law even to save His only begotten Son. The Garden of Gethsemane now stands empty as they take Jesus away. Now let's look at the third garden. We're glad this garden's empty. This garden comes into view after Calvary. Jesus had been put to death because of our sins, for He never once sinned, friends. And some of the faithful take His body. They prepare it for the grave. Their hearts are crushed as they handle the lifeless body of Jesus. Can you just imagine? find this in John 19 chapter 19 verse 41 now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid this is what the wealthy would do see the wealthy would find a place in in rock in areas of the cemeteries so to speak that we have today and they would have that hewn out and they would have a beautiful garden planted on the outside. Dress it up. This is where they were. This was a garden. And in the garden a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. There they lay. There laid they Jesus. Therefore because of the Jews preparation day. For the sepulcher was nigh at hand. They put Jesus in this garden. You know, the Sabbath is drawing on. Not wanting to break God's commandments, they hurriedly bring the, the dead, limp body of the Savior to this garden and carefully lay Him in that new tomb. Jesus has done His Father's will. He has kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. He has taken the sins of the whole world upon Himself and paid the penalty for transgression. He has died in man's place. And the disciples, they're now in disarray. They're dazed and confused. They're heartbroken. All seems lost. They're in fear for their own lives even. They meet in the upper room to mourn and wonder about what might have been. They lock the doors. They don't want anybody to know they're there. Jesus is dead and gone. What do we do now, they ask. All is lost. Uh, Jesus is resting in the tomb. He's keeping the fourth commandment, isn't he? even in death. After the Sabbath ends, the women head towards the garden to finish what was so hurriedly done to the dead body of Jesus on the preparation day. And as they enter the garden, they discover that, wait a minute, it's empty. It's empty. Except for an angel at the door of the sepulcher. Just like an angel at the gate of the empty Garden of Eden. As angels there. 
We read in Matthew 28, verse 5, And the angel answered and said unto the woman, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. What would be your reaction? You hear the words, He's not here. And then hear the words, For he is risen. Just as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly. Tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Although I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy. <laughs> and did run to bring his disciples' word. Who knows, they probably hadn't run in years. But they had a quickened energy, didn't they? And the garden is empty. What does this empty garden teach us today, friends? That Jesus gained victory over death in the grave. That Jesus is alive forevermore. That we have hope for eternal life with Him. As Paul exclaims, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Jesus lives. He lives. And because He lives, <laughs> we who believe shall live forever. From grateful hearts. From lips touched with holy fire. Friends. Let the glad song ring out. Christ is risen. He has left the garden empty. He lives. He lives. Praise God he lives. From Desire of Ages, page 786. To the believer, Christ is the resurrection and the life. In our Savior, the life that was lost through sin is restored. For He has life in Himself to quicken whom He will. He is invested with the right to give immortality. He has a right to do it. Because He lives. The life that He laid down in humanity, He takes up again and gives to humanity. Praise God. Each empty garden, beloved, teaches an incredible lesson about the plan of salvation. From falling into sin the incredible battle with self and victory over sin and death through our Lord and Savior. What love bestowed upon us, friends. Jesus reigns and His love for us is everlasting. Do you believe that? 
I believe it. Paul puts it in such a beautiful way. Romans chapter 8, we're familiar with this. Paul says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also make intercession for us. And so he, he's kind of answering his own questions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can do it? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, Paul says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So as he looks back at all this, Paul is telling us he realizes He's persuaded, you see, through all that Christ has done. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present or things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And because of Jesus, there will be a restored garden. And this restored garden will never be empty. But it will be inhabited by the redeemed of all ages. And in this restored garden, we will walk. If found faithful. And we will talk with God in the cool of the day. just as it was meant to be, friends. Don't give up. We're so close to that day. Keep looking up. Don't give up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for Jesus. It is everything to us. We thank you for your promises. Thank you that you loved us so much you gave your son. We're thankful for victory in him. Lord, we wish to be found faithful. Help us to that end. Let us be examples to others as Jesus is to us. Fill our hearts with his love, with your love. And may we be found faithful on that day. Let's remember these gardens and look forward to the day where we will be in that garden again. Thank you for the Sabbath day, for wonderful blessings that you give to us this day. May they continue, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.